0: You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe.
1: Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. And I'm Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. We recently sat down with Dr. Deep Pandita,
0: Chief Medical Informatics Officer and Associate Professor of Medicine at UCI Health.
1: We learn about Dr. Pandita's journey in becoming both an internist and clinical informaticist, how she found joy in early adoption of EHR software, and how she's become a champion of implementation. She also talks about how design can help balance out health inequities,
0: how to travel the distance between what should be happening and what is happening in a clinical setting, plus the hidden value for informaticists of simply walking around and observing.
1: Let's plug in. All right, Dr. Pandita, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: So can you tell us how a mild-mannered internist has become a a CMIO rock star? Um, Were you bitten by a radioactive insect? What was it that caused you to become who you are, the accidental informaticist?
2: That's a great uh, story to tell right there. Um, I wouldn't say mild-mannered, but yes, very vested in the fundamentals of internal medicine. I've always viewed myself as an internist first and an an informaticist second. Um, But I think it laid the foundation for what I am today. So, you know, as internists, we look at the big picture and uh, the big picture and then whittle it down to, you know, what really matters. And I think informatics is pretty much the same. It is, you look at the big picture, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And then by piecemeal by piecemeal get down to, okay, what might be the plausible solution? So I think it, it's a perfect connection uh, between internal medicine and informatics. However, um, my my journey into informatics was not as simple. Uh, I call myself the accidental informaticist because I happened to be in the right place at the right time where we were transitioning from paper records to EMRs. And while everyone was running away, I was finding joy in it. I was embracing it. And people were like, what kind of a weirdo are you that you know you find joy in electronic health records because everyone was screaming and kicking. And they sort of started looking to me as uh, what we would call today a super user. Uh, I was helping people and then uh, got a formal title to be that helper person. Eventually, you know, got a title of uh, EPIC clinician champion when we went to EPIC as a medical record. Transitioned on to being the ambulatory lead for uh, uh, EPIC and uh, eventually landed a CHIO role at my former organization. And now I'm CMIO at uh, UC Irvine Health. So that has sort of been my journey. But I think there have been a few things that have stayed key to who I am today. One is always think of the big picture and then see what is the problem you're trying to solve, not a square peg in a round hole type of solutioning. And then two, the patient and the provider is the center of every solution. You know, if you're not designing solutions, keeping the patient and the provider in the center, you're going to fail. So I think those two things have have grounded me, but also have been sort of the key tenants to whatever success I've had.
1: So no radioactive insect. Um, I'm and I'm, I'm I'm glad, but I'm also a little bit sad because I think that would have been a great story. Um, so you accidentally became an informaticist just because, uh, you know, you, you showed up and and you didn't hate it. And and so you, you got better at it. Sounds like you, you've accidentally become a, a designer as well. Uh, you didn't you didn't grow up thinking that you were going to be thinking about uh, human centered design or applying uh, design principles to your work. yet Yet here you are.
2: That is very true. And in fact, I consider myself the most. Unrefined designer growing up, you know, I had no exposure to computers. I grew up in India. We did not have any computers. When I was in medical school in India, there was one computer which was locked in the library, and you had to sort of know the librarian, you know, like close and personal in order to get access to that. So, no exposure to computers. In fact, this is a funny story that my first exposure as a first day as a resident. We were logging into the computer and I couldn't do that. And the help desk guy on the phone said, hey, that green icon, that's what you need to click. And I said, what is an icon? And there was silence at the other end because they could not believe that there was someone they were talking to who didn't know what an icon meant. But, you know, fast forward, uh, now I know, uh, you know, much more than I want to know. But the the foray into design came about because we designed so many bad uh, systems and so many bad projects, mainly because we did not capture the voice of who we were designing for. So you know the the I say this in all my team meetings: you're designing with people and not for people. If you design just for people with under assumptions that you're providing a solution for them, you're always going to be uh, you know, stumped at some point as to what was I thinking when I did that. So again, you know, designing with people is where the success lies uh, because there is no one size fits all. I mean, we know this in uh, you know every healthcare delivery principle. You know, no two patients are alike. The same. The while, yes, you know, you might use a certain antibiotic for a certain condition. Your patient, if you are not designing the treatment for them looking at their allergies looking at their past patterns of response you're not going to be successful so it's it's the same thing around any user centered design principle and this is not just for electronic solutions this is for environmental solutions this is for designing buildings designing uh, clinic spaces designing even an office space where you're interacting with your patient where should the computer face where is the patient sitting how will the patient feel engaged with you rather than feeling like they're engaging with the screen. Um, These are all important things because at the end of the day, healthcare is a human interaction. You know, it's based on, um, grounded in principles of humanism more than the science. You know, there is the art of medicine and there's the science of medicine. The science is second nature to you. It's all in your mind, your computer is helping you with that, but the art of medicine is what is the healing component of medicine.
0: Deep, you've been involved in multiple ehR go lives what makes them so difficult to get right
2: right so this is a great uh, question and I'll, I'll tell you understanding the why is the most important thing so why are you implementing this why are you doing it in a big bang manner or uh, a go live in a phased manner and then explaining the why because again remember when you're Implementing EHRs, you're disrupting spaces. And understanding that disruption creates a sort of fear among people is very important. At the same time, the other aspect you need to know is who are you implementing for? Have you engaged them in the process? It's it's changing culture in your organization when you're implementing. So if you're not cognizant of the fear, the psychology, the the, the culture um, and you're just saying we got to do this because we have to switch to an EMR, that's not going to sit well with people. You have to bring them along in on the journey. And again, that starts very early when you are even implementing and you have just a project on a paper, you have to engage the end users. And then when you actually have pilots or you have actually snippets of information that you can actually show them, even though it may not be well thought out yet, you have to keep them engaged in the process. You know, I love patient journey maps. I love uh, engaging our our providers in patient journey maps because that gives them a visual, even if it's just uh, on a paper, it gives them a visual that, oh, my voice is being included in this design. And, And that is very important. And then subsequently, when you actually have a system and you're testing it out, your pilots, and this is a funny story, I'll tell you. We, In my uh, organization that I was at previously, we had a set use of pilot users. And for every implementation, they would reach out to the same subset of pilot users because this was their usability lab. And I was like, you cannot do that because every implementation is for a different purpose for a different user group. And this, these users are very savvy now. I mean, they will always tell you, you are fine and you're okay to go ahead. It is those other people that you have not brought on as pilot users that are actually going to be having the problems when you go live. So again, tailoring your usability testing to the actual audience who's going to be ultimately using is very important.
0: So I love that you're pulling on some of these principles, right? Designing with rather than for, understanding your why. Uh, And the reason is, I'm and I'm going to quote a little Tolstoy here from Anna Karenina, where he says, you know, happy families are all alike, but unhappy families are, you know, uh, each unhappy in their own way. Tech project implementation, in particular, are so painfully bad in each their individual way. So I, I like these ideas that if if you abstract away and begin to think about some of those principles at the beginning you can, even though the circumstances will be completely different and your system is going to be different than the last system you worked in, um, you can still get to the right place by starting there. Are there, are there other ones you would touch on other principles that you you see do the same thing?
2: Right. And, and uh, I think one of the key tenants is going to be ultimately we are all in care delivery because we want to do right by our patients. So, mm, make sure you're including the patient voice and the patient preferences in your design. Because even if it's a back end design, you're designing for say charge capture or something like that, it has to be second nature because if a clinician is dropping a charge, it has to come at a time where it's appropriate during their interaction or after the interaction. It has to be in a manner that is non-intrusive to the patient. So keeping all these things in mind is very important. The, The other thing is, it's not just the software, it's also the ecosystem of the software. So where are you sitting when you're using that software? Are you in an office space? Are you doing virtual care from home? You know, what do you need if you're doing virtual care from home? Is it a quiet space? Do you need a different set of mics? Do you need a noise like headphone? These things are very important to consider when you're designing systems. So it's not just, hey, this is a new mod in Epic, go use it. It's more than that. It is about who's using it, where are you using it? Is it culturally appropriate usage for your patient population? Are you acknowledging any downsides that system might have or it hasn't incorporated yet, which your patients might raise as a concern? You know, um, a perfect example, when we are doing virtual care design, there are certain cultures where females don't want to be on video. And if you have a patient population that's predominantly of those, you know, female cohorts, you don't want to be designing a system where they are obligated to turn the video on. So that's sort of the user centricity principles that you have to keep in mind.
1: So, you know, balancing the needs of certain users is, is key, as, as you've been you know, saying. And um, how do, do, you, do you encounter times where the, you have the patient on one side and the provider on the other side and you can make it very easy for one of them, but you you struggle to make it easy to do that thing for both. And I, I think one example that um, Jerome often uh, references is uh, we've made it very easy for patients to message their physicians. And we said, this is great. Uh, this will solve all of our problems. And um, in fact, now we've overwhelmed many physicians with uh, messages. And and um, he always says, again, I'm I'm speaking for him because he's not so good at English. He's good at Russian, apparently, with the Tolstoy reference, but, um, you know, uh, you've smoothed out a wall that's got a brick shooting out and you push it back in. And you're like, this is great. But now on the other side of the wall, that brick is, is pushing out. So how how do you find that balance or or do you ever do it?
2: Yeah, I do. And it's it's very hard. So I'll give you another example. So I was designing for self-scheduling for mammograms for female patients because this was something. You know, our our operations folks wanted it because they wanted in more volume. Our patients wanted it because it was ease of scheduling. Yet on the physician side, the chief of radiology, the chief of primary care said, this will never work because X, Y, Z, you know, it'll overwhelm my radiology tax. It'll be too many mammograms to read, all of that. So, you know, again, that push and pull um there was a demand side there was a strategy side there was a volume access side and then on the other hand side was the physician burden side so got into a room got the patient um group in the same room as the radiology chair and the uh, CMO and i said talk it out here's a need here is the solution and Honestly, once the chair of radiology understood the pain points, like the people had to wait six months for a mammogram, or they were holding the phone for one hour while they were also taking care of three kids at home, and it was just impractical to actually be on the call to be able to schedule the mammogram, they understood it. And at the end of that meeting, it was like, yeah, let's try it out in a couple of our mammogram locations. And if it's successful, we'll uh, roll it out everywhere. We didn't even have to wait two months. Within a month, we had rolled it out everywhere. So, you know, you have to think outside the box. But having all the interested parties around the same table, sometimes that's the simplest solution.
0: Deepti, there are enormous disparities in health outcomes in the United States. And if you design a system so that everybody, it works the same for everybody, then really, you're not addressing, you're not helping to address that problem. Right. And I think I've heard you say that health equity and design go hand in hand. Can you, can mm-hmm. you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. And, and how it looks in practice.
2: That's really uh, something that I'm very passionate about because, you know, when we get sort of, uh, let's take the example of an EMR, you get the EMR, you get the foundational system, I think of it as a house. You know, you get the house, you have the roof and the walls and everything, but how you are arranging the furniture, how you're arranging the pictures, how you're arranging what gadgets in your kitchen plug in where, that's all up to you, right? So think. the same thing applies when you're designing solutions. Um, You have to understand who is the audience you're designing it for. It is not just, and and this user centered uh, design for equity is not just for patients alone. It is for our clinicians too. No two clinicians practice similarly. Yes, a certain discipline might practice in a different in a certain way, and another discipline might practice in a different way. My first eye opening moment to this was when we back in the days of meaningful use, we had to reconcile outside medications, and the CMO tasked me with. Go, you know, these three departments are not engaging in this. And one of them was the anesthesia department. Go make sure that they are reconciling outside medications because we need to do this for meaningful use and there are X, Y, Z number of dollars on the table. I actually went and spent an entire day with the anesthesia folks and I looked at their workflow and the pace of their workflow and I said, there is no way in the way the anesthesia module was structured, that they can reconcile outside medications. And in fact, if they did that, it would actually result in patient safety uh, problems. So I came back and told the CMO, cut your losses. This is not in their workflow. And even if we have to lose this amount of money, you will lose more if you make them less efficient by actually forcing them to follow something that is not in their workflow. And it made sense. You just have to connect the dots. So that is something that you have to keep in mind when you're, you know, making sure that so that no two systems are alive. Again, you know, you mentioned health equity. When I was designing virtual solutions, you know, we all thought of, you know, we can go live overnight. All you need is a Zoom link and a scheduling, and of course, everyone will embrace it. And you know, we have had this. Uh, clinic for teen adolescents that were Hispanic, and no one was using the virtual care platform. And the director of that clinic came to me and said, something is wrong in the way we are doing this because no one is using it. And all it took me was talk to one teen, and I said, show me what you see and tell me why you're not able to do uh, virtual care, because she was even in the peak of COVID, she preferred to come into the clinic to be seen. And I said, you're putting your life in danger. Show me what's the problem. And she said, I don't know. I got this something on my phone, but I don't know what to do with it. And it struck me that the link we were sending was in English. And this patient was purely you know, Spanish speaking, did not read English, came back put the design team to work. And I said, can we auto-translate the link into patient's preferred language? Did that, adoption went up 80%. very simple, insightful, just by observation, but designing for equity.
0: Deepti, earlier you talked about designing with a patient population. And um, I think you've, I've heard you give an example of doing this in the women's health space around mental health care uh, during the postpartum period. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you went in thinking and then what, what, what came out of it?
2: Yeah. So we had a design team that was designing a center for postpartum uh, mental health care. And uh, the design team was like, what do these women want? And these are, this is, we were basing this on pure assumptions, okay? So, and this is females who are designing, you know, and they've been through uh, childbirth. And so they they said, oh, what would we want here? Oh, we want a spa-like atmosphere. We want, you know, water available. We want mood lighting. We want, you know, and, and all this conversation was going on. And then there was this very smart medical assistant who said, why don't we ask our patients what, They want. And remember, this is, we were setting this up in an inner city hospital, which is predominantly African American patients of very low socioeconomic status. And this is privileged physician women trying to design. So that disconnect was already there. We brought these patients in and said, hey, you know, wouldn't it be nice? We will have this kind of lighting here and calm rooms and you can listen to, you know, pleasant music and we'll have water and beverages. And and they said, you know, I'm going to take two buses to get here and I'll have three of my other kids along. All I want is someone to take care of those kids while I can actually have a conversation with the physician. It was such an eye-opening moment for us. We were like, oh, we totally disregarded all that. We need some toys in the waiting room for the other kids to play with. We need little mats where they can sort of, the other toddlers can, you know, roam around. And by the way, wouldn't it be nice if we had some volunteers here who could take care and play with those other kids while the mom is having their visit? It was a game changer. I mean, we gave up on all those mood lightings and the music and all of that. And pivoted completely to a more
1: user-centered design. So, how do you how do you get those patients to be um, you know? How it sounds easy to me. Well, well, we should just ask the patients. But how, how do you how do you find those patients? How do you uh, interact with them? Do you are they volunteer? Are they are they you know coming to regular meetings or this is this ad hoc? You, you've obviously done it. How does it best work?
2: So it best works if, you know, you have a designated patient experience team and you build a patient uh, panel that is specifically dedicated. And, and remember, patients are more than happy to volunteer themselves. And make sure these are not just the happy patients. You know, you have to have, you get patient complaints and you, you listen to these patient complaints. The patient experience team has a running list of these patients. Include You know, the disgruntled ones, the happy ones, the middle of the road ones and create a patient panel that you can tap on um, for all these kind of resources. I at my uh, prior organization, actually, I would go once every other month in front of the patient panel to just get insights on, you know, how are you using my chat? What could we do differently? And uh, they would tell me things that I had never thought of. I mean, I, I would have never Part of saying, okay, the notes should be on the top, and the and the letters should be in the bottom. I mean, just the configuration of how when they open my chart and they look at things versus how I would approach it was eye opening to me. So it, it's just having those conversations on a regular basis with a dedicated patient panel. I would encourage all health systems to have
1: that. And so, kind of bring you're doing two things though at the same time. But At first, you're you're bringing folks in. And I think Mm -hmm. it's especially key that, uh, you're not just bringing happy people in, right. Um, Cause then you just often get the answers that you expected to get exactly. uh, folks are happy with the work that you're doing. And that makes complete sense. Um, but the other thing is that you're kind of uh, practicing, I think it was Jack Welch who said, you know, management by walking around, um, just randomly kind of walking around and, and um, seeing how things are working uh, in, in the real world, as opposed to how you're told things are working. Uh, Cause oftentimes uh, you know, managers and other leaders will tell you, this is what we do. And this is how it works. And you're like, that's great. That workflow is awesome. And and then you get there and you find oftentimes that that may not be the case that, um, and sometimes it's, it's a training problem. And, and sometimes it's just, oh no, we never got that piece of equipment. So we put, couldn't possibly do that thing. And, uh, and, you know, I, I've certainly seen it where you, you ask, well, how long has that been? And, you know, six months. Um, wow. Okay. So this thing hasn't been working for a long time. And so it's, it's both of those things, uh, are are seemingly required.
2: Right. And that's what I tell my team, travel the distance between what should be happening and what is happening. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a very, very difficult thing because you need boots on the ground to do that, but it is the right thing to do.
0: How do you know when to bring people in to design with them? Because you don't want there to be so many options that you end up with decision paralysis or the team just ends up spinning forever. So do you bring them in when you're almost done or when you have, you know, one or two things for them to choose from and there's sort of limited options?
2: I would say uh, probably it's not so much when do you bring them in, it's when do you, what do you present to them? You know, so I would say bring them in at every stage. So when you're just conceptualizing when you are actually having a couple, one or two concepts that are going forward. And then when you actually have a product, you need to bring them in at every stage. But it is the nature of the engagement with them that drives success. So you bring them in and you say, hey, we have noticed that these two, three things are pain points and we are trying to design the solution. Would you help us? So that creates engagement and excitement. Then you work on that, iterate and say, we heard you. That's important to say, we heard you. And based on what you said, we have whittled it down to feasibility of these one or two solutions. Which one would you pick? You may already have a solution in mind from the get-go. It is just that getting them to that decision-making versus you telling them that this is the decision is a game changer, you know? So, and then once you have the solution, you, you, you know, again, say, hey, would you test this for us? You were instrumental in getting us here. Now, would you test this for us and, you know, help us with the training, go live, all of that. So I would say it's, it's at every stage.
1: Deepthi, we've just scratched the surface of, of applying some of those principles of human centered design. Any further thoughts on how people could uh, apply some of these things in the real world?
2: Well, I, I think the couple of other things I would add is, you know, when you talk about human centered design, you know, there's so much written about it and all that, but you have to actually practice it to learn from it. Because Everything that you read in journals, books, all that will only get you so far till you actually start using it in real life and realize, oh, that was fine for that workspace with that patient population, but that's going to quickly fall apart here, you know? Um, so, again, it's an iterative process. So, don't get disappointed if you fail a couple of times because one human-centered design principle does not, does not fit for every situation. You know, um, you have to sort of create your own journey towards it. The important thing is have it in mind, You know, have user-centered design as a tenant uh, rather than getting stuck on one principle of user-centered design versus another.
0: So Deepthi, at the end of the podcast, we ask everybody the same question, which is to share with us. Two or three things, and they could be outside of healthcare, but two or three things that are so well designed that they bring you joy to interact with.
2: Wow, I can think of a couple. Um, I think I love the electric fence. You know, it's there, but it's there for a very specific purpose. And it's not to be seen, not to be heard. That, that's how, when I talk to physicians, uh, you know, interacting with the EMR, they said, it just needs to be there helping me, but not in my face interrupting me. And I think that electric fence is a great example. My puppy can play in the yard, but as soon as they're sort of going outside the guardrails, there's a little something to do. Um, So that would be one. Um, another great example would be, um, you know, how uh, these uh, food delivery apps work in terms of picking a la carte menus, you know, so they know after a while what i want where i want it delivered from i can also pick from two different places combine it i think patients really want something like that okay i want my primary care doctor here but you know tomorrow if i want my mammogram at a different location because that's closer to work i should be able to pick that menu and by the way day 3 i am at a different place uh, and there is a lab for the same organization right there could i just walk in there and get my lab while i'm shopping um, you know, or in between two errands that I think that would be awesome if we can design healthcare to be like picking food menu.
0: I love those answers. Uh, and I guess I'm showing my um, my my Gen X roots because every time somebody says electric fence, I think of Ren and Stimpy. Um, <laughs> but
1: but those are both great examples of of how design can really work for people. And I'd like just to clarify, uh, Dr. Pandita, that you're not talking about applying electric charges to physicians who don't fill out their charts correctly, because I was a little confused there. Don't talk about my dissertation like that, Craig.
2: (laughs) No, because I have actually thought about how what Epic could have a little like a arm that reaches out and catches you by the neck if you're not doing things right. You know, it it actually did occur to me, but we're not there yet.
1: A little of the three stooges action.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Slap on the wrist. Yes. Well,
1: there's there's some design work there to do if anyone's listening, if they want to start working on that. I personally am now working on the I heart patient journey maps T-shirt that I want to buy for you because um, I, that's not something I commonly hear. I heart. I love patient journey maps, but you do. And if I can get you a T-shirt that says that uh, I'll be working on that design.
2: I would love that.
1: Deepthi, this has been great. Thank you so much for um, uh, your time and your thoughts. And we really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a pleasure and a joy being here.
1: Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check back for more episodes of Designing
0: for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well.